If you would, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13, you may notice uh, this is the book that I've been preaching through in the evenings. And you also may notice that it was probably, it it wasn't Monday that I knew I was going to be preaching today. And so this seemed to be the most accessible thing that I had um, at my desk. So uh, 1 Kings 13, we're going to be covering all the way through 1420, though we'll only read to the end of chapter 13. Uh, A bit of a lengthy reading, but one that I promise uh, will not leave you unexcited or uninterested either. 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. And his hand which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. And the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar and according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. And so he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And the father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said to him, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, 
Bring him back with you into your house that you, can eat, that you may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. And so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and eaten bread and drunk water in this place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your father's. After he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him in the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, is the man of God who disobeyed the word, uh, is it, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. And therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, Bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against this altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. And this thing, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priest of the high places and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, though an interesting story we know that it is more than that. We know that it is, the lo- it is the word that proceeds from your mouth. The word that you have written with us in mind. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you might help us and that you might speak to us through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Today is, is Sunday. I think, which means that yesterday was Saturday, I think, which means that a lot of people in their homes were watching college football yesterday. A number of different interesting games going on. I watched a few of them. Recently, over the past two years, I've kind of been more faithful uh, 
watching them more frequently. And since I've really kind of started paying attention and started watching kind of the different aspects of the game and how it's played and how it's evolved since I watched it, you know, 10 years ago, one of the things that, that, that kind of never ceases to amaze me is the unwavering commitment that these players have to that football. I mean, you, you watch a team on offense and, and, and you know, the wide receiver goes out and he, he's running between two defenders and, and the, the, the quarterback throws him the ball knowing full well that the minute that ball hits his hands, he's going to get creamed. But they still have this unwavering commitment to cling to the ball. It doesn't matter if they're going to get creamed. It doesn't matter if they're going to do flips in the air. It doesn't matter if they're going to land terribly. It doesn't matter. They just want to hold on to the ball. That's their goal. That's their main thing is to hold on to the ball and to never let go. The same thing with running backs. They're like, there's 14 guys right there lined up to tackle me. Well, let's run straight through the middle of them. Okay. And he just runs. And, he, and what does he do? He holds on to the ball. Like it is their job. It is their, it is their main priority to just cling to the football. There's an illustration to be drawn from that idea for our lives as Christians. Not infrequently do we go through life and get creamed, get rocked, get devastated. So the question is then, what are we clinging to through that devastation? The question is, what am I clinging to to get me through life? What, What is my goal? What is my main priority? What's going to sustain me as a Christian as I live my life in a fallen world in which sin impacts me on a daily basis and rocks my world? What am I clinging to? I think for some of us, perhaps maybe that, that answer, though we wouldn't like to admit it, would be our wallets, right? our wealth. It's really easy to depend upon my wealth to get me through whatever comes to pass. Wealth can fix a lot of problems, though it can't fix health or death. So it's insufficient. Perhaps maybe I may cling to my power, my authority, my rank that I have, where in the places that God has placed me, though that also finds its ends. Or perhaps maybe for for most of us in the room, our tendency is to cling to better circumstances in the future, right? The hope for better circumstances in the future. It's very tempting when we when we get creamed, when we get devastated by life itself, is to just think, "Oh, it'll get better later. My circumstances will get fixed, and it will get better." The only problem with that is, is that's not always true. Sometimes circumstances don't get better. Sometimes things don't fix themselves. And so I'm left a little bit underwhelmed by clinging to that hope. The thing that that 1 Kings 13 teaches us about 
how to live our lives is it teaches us that the only thing worth clinging to is the word of the Lord itself. That term mentioned no less than about 10 or 11 times throughout this passage. The word of the Lord did this. The word of the Lord did that. The word of the Lord is accomplishing things. And so the word of the Lord is the only thing worth holding on to, worth clinging to throughout life itself. And we see this first and foremost, or firstly, in the first 10 verses where we see that the word of the Lord is living and active. Right, if you haven't been here on, on Sunday nights, you, you, let me get you kind of caught up for a minute, okay? So up to 1 Kings chapter, chapter 10, Israel has been one united nation, one nation under God in, in the most explicit sense. But after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits. And so this man named Jeroboam becomes king of the northern part of the kingdom and a man named Rehoboam becomes king of the southern part of the kingdom. God told them that this was going to happen. And in fact, God promised to Jeroboam, who was not in David's line, if you will just follow me, if you will just obey me, if you will just walk with me and love me as as David did, then I will give you everything. I will give you anything. Just love me, just follow me, just walk with me. Until we get to chapter 12, when we realize that that's not at all what Jeroboam decides to do. Instead, instead of following God, instead of walking with God, instead of obeying God's commandments, Jeroboam hijacks Yahweh's system of worship and, trend, and copies and pastes it into his own system of worship. Right? He ordains priests from all the tribes. He builds altars on the high places. He builds temples and he makes for himself his own gods. Right? He, he makes these two ca- uh, golden calves like that's worked before. He hijacks Yahweh's worship and diverts all of the worship in the northern kingdom to these false gods, these two golden calves. And so when we walk into chapter 13, verse 1, that's what's going on. Jeroboam is leading worship in his false worship system. And so what are we told in verse 1? Well, that, that God sent a man of God from Judah, the southern kingdom, to Bethel. Right? The word of the Lord commissioned this man of God to go to Bethel. And, and when he gets there, Jeroboam is standing by the altar to make offerings. So you can imagine it in your head, right? The, the, the man of God walks up to Jeroboam about to offer offerings on this altar while spectators are around, people are there to worship, and, and the man of God pronounces a prophecy. A prophecy that one of David's sons, many years down the road, will be used by the Lord to judge Israel's false worship. Right? He promises a couple of. He promises him not only that he will judge this false system of worship, but more specifically, the priests that work within this false system of worship will be burned on those false altar, false altars. Right? Human bones will be burned on this altar. So he pronounces, the man of God pronounces a prophecy against Jeroboam's newly invented false system of worship. And just in case he doesn't believe, the the man of God gives a sign, right? A a proof that this is going to happen. He's, He's saying that if this happens, so will that. 
And so the immediate sign that the, that the man of God gives is that the altar will be, uh, will be split in two and the ashes on the altar will be poured out, verse 4. The altar shall be torn down, verse 3, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. And so you can imagine Jeroboam at at this moment in time, right? All of the people in this geographical area have come to engage in this false system of worship. And Jeroboam's about to do the call to worship so that he can alter on this altar or offer offerings on this altar. And the man of God walks up and stops the show in its tracks. And so naturally, Jeroboam, kind of wanting to win the situation back to himself and regain control, points to the man of God and says, seize him, stop him from doing what he's doing. And in that moment, his hand, his hand is seized, his arm is seized, it it stops, it's paralyzed. And then in that moment, we see the sign fulfilled, right? The thing that was to attest to the prophecy is fulfilled. The altar is torn down and the ashes are poured out. According to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And so this obviously gets Jeroboam's attention. With his arms, with his arms paralyzed. And his false system of worship sort of deteriorating around him. Jeroboam asks the man of God to entreat your Lord so that he might heal me. The man of God does. And God graciously heals Jeroboam's arm. It's like all these details, all these things going on. Okay, what's the purpose of this? What is, what's going on here? What's really at the bottom of, of, of God sending this man of God to confront Jeroboam in his false worship? Right? Why the confrontation and then why the confirmation by the sign and then why the act of grace? Jeroboam didn't deserve any grace. The word of the Lord is being living and active in the sense that God is holding out repentance for Jeroboam. And if you're a close reader of Kings, you're like, well, no, that, that, no, he's the bad guy. Surely God wouldn't allow him to repent. Surely God wouldn't hold out repentance for Jeroboam, right? He's the guy who's, who's Ozark trailed, right? The legitimate worship of Yahweh, he's the guy who's like hijacked the main brand and made it the public's brand of Yahweh's worship. It's it's kind of a copy of the thing, but it's not really the thing. Surely the guy who has broken the first and second commandments like the worst way ever and led all of northern Israel to do the same, surely God would not hold out repentance for him. That's exactly what God is doing. That word, repentance, the Hebrew term for that, which is used in a, in a number of different ways. It's used in the sense of return or restore or go back. Mentioned 15 times in this one chapter. So God is essentially saying, Jeroboam, stop doing what you're doing. And repent of your sin. And if there's anything that we can learn from Jeroboam, 
from this instance. It's that no sin is too big that it can't be repented of. But as God holds out repentance to the most evil man in the land and the man by which every king hereafter will be compared to, we realize that there is no sin too big that it can't be repented of. That's something that that we probably wrestle with more than we think we do. It's very easy to say in the Christian life that, Lord, I would stop this, but, but it's too big. I can't do it. whether it be our our sexuality or whether it be our attraction or whether it be our unhealthy relationship with alcohol or other substances. Lord, I, I would, but I can't. It's too big. And your theology is correct apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's not correct in light of the rest of the Scriptures and the fact that the Spirit does support His people in fighting their temptations. In light of the fact that the Spirit does work repentance in the hearts of God's people. No sin is too big that it can't be repented of. And neither is any sin too small that it shouldn't be repented of. Both of those are true. None are too big that they they can't be repented of and no one's too small that it shouldn't be repented of. Remember how Jeroboam got here. Jeroboam didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I think that I will become the most evil king on the face of the earth. At the end of chapter 12, we're told what leads to Jeroboam's arriving here. And it's as simple as distrusting the promises of God. God told him, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you everything that you need. I'll give you these 10 kingdoms and you can rule over them and your house can rule over them forever. But instead at the end of chapter 12, in the face of of the, the prospect that he might lose his power, he forsakes the promises of God. He disbelieves the promises of God and acts for himself. He says, I know how to keep the people from going away from me. I will stop them from going to worship in the southern kingdom. And so that's how we get here. He builds his own shrines of worship in order to stop the people from going to the temple because he distrusted the promises of God. No sin is so small that it shouldn't be repented of. Even that one. Disbelief. And what God has said and what God has promised is a terrible road to go down. And so whether it be a little sin or whether it may be a a big sin, nothing is too big for repentance. Repent and believe is what Christ preaches. Repent and believe. The Spirit is willing. And so here we see the word of God, the word of the Lord coming to Jeroboam and holding out repentance to him. Jeroboam, if you would just repent, then things would, things would be better. So we find the, the word of the Lord to be living and active in the fact that it's always holding out repentance, but it's also 
We also realize that with the word of the Lord, there is consequence for compromise. Now, the man of God starts out great. Right? The word of the Lord comes to him and he, he, he's, yes, Lord, I'll go. And so he goes to, he goes to Bethel and he goes to this, this false temple, this false altar, and he calls out the king of the northern kingdom. Right? He pronounces the word, of, he pronounces a prophecy of judgment against one of the most evil men this day and time. And then when Jeroboam sort of tries to, to entreat him, right, to win him over to his own side, just to, uh, thank you for healing my hand. Will you just come have some refreshments with me? Come, come to my house and we'll drink some water, we'll drink some wine, we'll eat some bread, we'll have a great time. Thank you so much for your ministry. And how endearing. But the man of God says, no, I can't. Because I've been told by God that I should not eat anything here or drink anything here, nor return the way that I have come. It seems like a pretty simple command. One of the things that, that's kind of hard to see or hard to pick up on the English is the fact that, that the, the, the negation, right, the you shall not, Hebrew has a couple ways of, of saying you shall not or you shouldn't or no. There's the kind of the regular no and then there's this no. The same note that's used in the Ten Commandments. You shall not have any other gods before me. That's the same negation that's used here. You shall not eat bread. You shall not drink water. You shall not return by the way that you came. And he states it accurately before Jeroboam. I'm not going back because God has told me you shall not. Stands firm on the word of God. Praise the Lord. But then we're introduced to the to the old prophet. We have suspicions about him from, from the get-go, right? Because, uh, number one, he's an old prophet and he's living in the northern kingdom where this has been going on for however long. Number two, his, sin, or his sons were at this event that just happened. And so we can presume that, that they were there perhaps to participate in the false worship that Jeroboam was about to offer. So already we're a little bit concerned about this old prophet who lived in Bethel. But nevertheless, the old prophet, he asks his son, or the sons come and tell him, hey, well, this is what happened today at the temple. And so the old prophet says, you know, okay, well, where did the guy go? And they tell him where to go. And they saddle the donkey and the old prophet goes and he finds the man of God sitting under an oak tree. And he asks him, are you the man of God from Judah? Verse 14, he said, I am. And then he said, come home with me and eat bread. And he says the same exact thing that he just told Jeroboam. I cannot go home with you. I cannot eat bread and I cannot drink drink because the word of the Lord has been given to me. You shall not eat. You shall not drink. You shall not return the way that you came. Praise the Lord. Faithful man of God. Until he's lied to. Verse 18. And the old prophet said to the man of God, Well, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may, that he may eat bread and drink water. Author says explicitly, But he lied to him. 
And we kind of feel sorry for the guy, don't we? We kind of feel sorry for the man of God. But notice, notice what he's trading here. He's trading direct revelation from God, a direct commandment of the Lord, a you shall not, absolutely not, no exceptions whatsoever, eat bread or drink or go back the way that you came. He's trading direct revelation for third-hand information from a questionable source in the first place. And not only that, but the Word of God is singular. God does not say two different things that contradict each other. Right? What God says, it is. It cannot be both. The Word of God does not contradict itself. And so, verse 19, the man of God compromises, so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. There are consequences for compromise. The man of God is, uh, the old prophet actually receives revelation while they're sitting there eating and drinking and the actual word of the Lord comes to the man of God or to the old prophet. Says that because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you but have come back and have eaten bread and drank water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And so they saddle the donkey, the man of God leaves, and the Lord supernaturally intervenes through a lion who kills the man but does not devour him, nor does the lion devour the donkey that's standing there the whole day until, until the man of God is picked up by the old prophet. And what just happened? The man of God compromised on the word of the Lord and it cost him his life. And so what's, what's the point? It's the point that the, that the word makes several times over. We must have an unwavering commitment to the word of the Lord. We must have an unwavering commitment to the word of the Lord. We shall not compromise on what God has said. This is true, this is true for us as a church. Right? If, we're, if this is going to be an existing church in 20 years or 30 years or 50 years or 100 years, what's going to be the thing that continues to make it exist? It's an uncompromising commitment to the word of God alone. And nothing else is going to, to sustain this church for any amount of time other than an uncompromising equip, uh, commitment to the word of the Lord. And the same thing is true with us as individual Christians. With the Spirit's help, we must, we must have an uncompromising commitment 
to the word of the Lord because our natural tendency is to do what Eve has done in the garden and to do what the man of God did when he was confronted with the lies, to double clutch the word of God. Right, to second guess. Did God really say? Did he really mean? Yes, he did. And God said, didn't God say, don't, don't get drunk in public, but it's okay if you get drunk at home. Or did God say, you know, it, it's okay to look, just don't touch. It's okay to lie if, you, if, if there's good ends and good reasons. It's okay to gossip if it's just a prayer request. Compromise always comes easy. It always comes easy. But it always comes with a cost. And for the man of God, it cost him his life. The word of the Lord is is worth clinging to, number one, because it holds out repentance, which leads to life, number two, because compromising the word of the Lord brings consequence. And number three, the word of the Lord always proves itself true. In verse two, the, the man of God comes to Bethel and he gives the prophecy, right? O altar, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. This is a prophecy that will not be fulfilled for a couple hundred more years. God knows it. And so God commissions the man of God to give a sign. What is the sign? How do I know that what the Lord just said, how do I know what the man of God just said is going to become true? Well, I'm gonna give you something to show that it's gonna become true by what happens right now, right? The altar is gonna be torn open and the the ashes on it are gonna be poured out. And what happens? The altar is torn open and the ashes are are, are poured out. This is meant to function as I say, the word of the Lord is true, right? The sign became true. We see the same exact thing happen with the man of God after he compromises on the word of God. What is the old prophet, what is the the old prophet told by God, right? Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment that your Lord God commanded, then your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. In other words, you're going to die. You're not going to make it back home. Disgraceful death. What happens? The very next paragraph, the man of God is torn off of his donkey by a lion. He doesn't make it to his own grave. Verse 30, we're told that the old prophet goes and gets the man of God, brings him back to his own town. In verse 30, he laid the body in his own grave. The word of the Lord proved true. The man of God didn't make it back to his own grave. And then there's Jeroboam. The word of the Lord had come to him to hold out to him repentance. If you would repent and believe, Jeroboam, please repent and believe. Verse 33, Jeroboam's witnessed everything that's just happened. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn. He did not repent from his evil way. 
but made priests for the high places. Again, from among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. The word of the Lord has come again. Jeroboam, this thing became sin and so that the house of Jeroboam's, Jeroboam's uh, sons would be cut off and destroyed from the face of the earth. And what is chapter 14, or at least the first half about? The word of the Lord proving true. One of Jeroboam's sons gets sick. He sends his wife to go try to seek help and seek healing. The priest there identifies that she's disguised and knows who she really is. Anyways, by the by verse 20 of, of chapter 14, Jeroboam's oldest, most well-loved son is dead. And Jeroboam himself is dead. The word of the Lord proved true. And for Jeroboam... A man who was unrepentant and a man who refused to turn from his evil way. What he experienced after his death was far worse than anything that he experienced before. We just studied in Sunday school what happens to unbelievers when they die. Well, they go straight to hell. The word of the Lord proved true for Jeroboam and and what the word of God says about what happens after death for those who refuse to repent and refuse to turn from their own way is also true. The wrath of God punishes sin. It's true. The word says it. It says it plainly. There's no dodging it. But it also says that Christ atones for sin. The promises of God for his people and their forgiveness in Christ are just as true as the statements about what happens to unrepentant sinners. And so my plea for you this morning is not to do what Jeroboam did and rest your hope in the fact that God is wrong, the hope that God is wrong, what he says is wrong, it won't come true. But to rest your your life on what God says is true, that your sins have been forgiven in Christ, just believe. Believe in him and trust in him. Rest your life on Christ upon whom by faith every sin is atoned for, even the big ones. Rest your life on Christ in whom there is no condemnation. Romans 8.1 Rest your life on Christ because in Him is life and life more abundantly. And so I ask you again, what, what are you clinging to? What are you clinging to? If it's your sin, and we've seen the end of that, I pray also that it's not hope in future better circumstances. 
because that will cream you as well. The only thing worth clinging to is the word of the Lord and what the Lord says about your sin and how it's covered in Christ by faith. Cling to that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that just as sure are your promises as your judgments. We thank you, O Lord, that by faith, by your grace, you save sinners. You cleanse them of their sin. And you lead them in paths of holiness by your Spirit. And so, Father, may you do the same for us that we might enjoy you, but that we also might glorify you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.